0: Happy Monday, fun day Monday, my favorite day of the week, I don't know about you guys, and it has everything to do with the fact that I start a new week of school, I love school, love what I do, I love School of Urban Missions, I love learning about the Word of God, I love teaching the Word of God, I love working with you students, amen, is it a good day, amen, it's a great day with Jesus, and uh, so, so excited to be with you guys today, Our pastor, Joe Wairostek, our visionary leader, he's in the batter's box and he's ready to bring a word from the Lord to us. We're excited to receive. Let's just give it up for the man of God. Amen. And then would you do me a favor turn down the mains again like you did last time? Thank you very much. Oh, you got it right there. Perfect. Okay, guys, let's go to the notes from last week, or excuse me, not last week, uh, yesterday on Worldview. And let's discuss this a little bit more in depth than what we had had the chance to do yesterday in church. <clears throat> and so the passage will be 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And I want to get my notes up right now. We got the projector down, but that's okay. God is still good. Yeah, everything. <clears throat> Excuse me. I love having you guys here. Thank you so much for the worship. That was so good. Let's go to Second Corinthians. <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah, could you give me some water from my office there, please? And then um, maybe let's get the uh, the board as well. I think I could draw some of this out a little bit better as I explain it. Thank you. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5 is what we need to look at for the idea of apologetic destruction of worldviews. Thank you, my brother. I really appreciate that. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5, says, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. So, thank you. Did you guys notice yesterday that I talked about, The weapons that we fight with are not the weapons of the world in the way, uh, did you notice how I brought it up in the way that the empires of the world have conquered in their worldview? I never really saw it that way until I took time to understand what it meant by that. So we're in a war of the worldviews, but we're not waging war like they do. So how did the Aztecs war, uh, how did they fight the war of worldviews? Did they come and debate with the surrounding villages? No, they just came and destroyed them. How did the Greeks with Alexander the Great come and fight his worldview, show his worldview to the world, you know? Like, they fought. They had wars. How did the Zulu nation, how how did Egypt have discussions, or I shouldn't even call it discussions, but how did they promote, how did the Egyptians promote their worldview? Through dialogue and discussion? No. How does China, let's go to the modern times, how does China promote its worldview to its people? Does it have discussions and debates and let the people of China decide what worldview they want to have? No, they jail the people who disagree, primarily now Christians. Same thing with North Korea. How about in Islamic nations? All these Muslims want to come here and have dialogue and interfaith exchange. How does that go in uh, Mecca? How does interfaith exchange go in Mecca, the heart of Islam? Can we go there and have an interfaith dialogue with them? Of course not. So the Bible says our weapons are not those weapons. We're not using force. We're not using intimidation. So when we look back at church history and we see that those things have happened, we're not here to go, I applaud that or deny that. What we're here to do is repudiate that. So when I look back and see right around the 500s, the Roman Catholic Church put on a list, Jared, to buy a new one of these. We just need to get a new one. This one is just totally messed up. It's not presentable for for a college or even for the church. Right around 500 A.D., thank you, my brother, we see that the first pope kind of looks at Rome being the center of the Christian empire and then as the Christian world is in cahoots with the Roman Empire, with uh, Rome and church together, they start conquering and start making what we would call um, the, the Christian nation, as it were. Eventually, Rome falls apart, the Byzantine Empire, Byzantine Empire comes around, Byzantine, Byzantine Empire has wars with Islam, Islam kind of puts a pressure on the Christian nation, so they have to kind of go into their own settlements and decide for themselves what they're going to do, because at that time, people also weren't happy with Christianity, uh, ruling over them, and fighting Islam, so then that's where you kind of get the European nations, and then the Church of England, the Church of France, all kind of breaking off, having their power. Well, long story short, anything that has to do with the globalization of Christianity by force, we repudiate. Now, our history goes through this, yes, we have to go through the Roman Catholic era and the Church of England era, and we have to go through all of that, but that doesn't mean we accept that. Does that that make sense to you guys? Okay, so we repudiate that. Uh, Where is the eraser? Did anybody see the eraser? Would you look for one, Jared? Jared will look for one, thank you. So we don't use the weapons of the world to fight our war. But what's most important about our weapons, the Bible says, is that they have divine power to demolish strongholds. So let's say this is the earth right here. Up here in the heavenly realms is where the battle really needs to be fought. Because if we conquer nations down here, the demons can just come and influence another generation. And that's what we see happening. The same lies being repeated over and over and over again. So it doesn't matter how often we deal with it down here, we ultimately have to deal with it up here. Now, because we know in Ephesians chapter 6 that we have spiritual authority, we understand how we deal with it. And then once and for all, these folks will be destroyed, sentenced to the lake of fire, along with all those who followed their lies. Now, in the second service, I went to a little bit more depth in this. Some of you were there. Some of you were only really in the first. And I talked about Satan's first set of lies. The first set of lies that Satan gave us are the same set of lies that Jesus defeated in his time of temptation, showing us the way to defeat it. If you look at my notes, you'll see at the beginning in the introduction, I color-code them, and I show the same way that we were tempted is the same way Jesus was tempted and i describe it through john who says this is we don't love the world nor the things in the world the love of the world is the lust of the flesh the lust of the eyes and the pride of life and i color code those three things the pride the lust of the flesh lust of the eyes and the pride of life i color code those in the genesis account and in the temptation of jesus now how did jesus when he was one on one with the devil how did jesus defeat the devil he said what it is Written. Exactly. So now we know the same way how we defeat these principalities, we defeat it by the Word of God. So once again, if I just killed someone who believed in Islam, that doesn't mean the lie of Islam goes away. The devil can promote that lie to somebody else. If we happen to exterminate all Muslims, That doesn't mean false religions will stop. The devil will just simply say another false religion because as many people who are open to deception will be deceived. If you know the story about Joseph Smith and the Mormon religion and the story about... um, Muhammad and in, in Islam, they're almost exactly identical. Both of them go searching in a place by themselves looking for answers because they don't think the Christian faith has the answers. And then they have visitations of people they think they can trust from biblical figures. Joseph Smith says he sees Jesus. Muhammad says he sees the angel Gabriel. Both of that's bo- based in Christianity. So these are both cults of Christianity. And then they develop another work another book the book of mormon the quran and see that deception goes on so but once again if we go well you know if we ever were doing the wrong thing and killed off all mormons killed off all muslims does that mean that will stop people from seeking in a cave or out in the woods another answer another way and that does that stop a demon from coming and lying and deceiving no right so we now know that the powers that we have are actually the strongest powers so it's not like we should look at it and go, well, there's no military power, so that's a weak, you know, we have a spiritual power, but so that's weaker, and that's like make-believe. No, it's not. Our spiritual power is actually stronger than military power. And where's the example of that? How did all of this happen in the Roman Empire? Because right around the 300s, the Roman Empire, through the emperor, converted to Christianity. How did we go from a small group of people right around 30 A.D., and being killed, and the last greatest persecution was right before the conversion of the emperor, Constantine. How do we go from being a persecuted group to then being the state religion of Rome? By fighting wars? Lifting up our swords? No, by the worldview, by believing in what the gospel taught and teaching it even unto death. Would you do me a favor and erase that for me, good sir? Thank you. Now, what I want us to do is first of all, understand how we ought to view our worldview. I'm going to use the same chart that I gave you in the notes, and then I'm going to explain it more in depth than I was able to do yesterday. And this is going to be our standard procedure now moving forward, is that we're going to have a lesson on Sunday and then more depth here in chapel. So I hope you guys like that. And then those listening as well will be able to do it, uh, will be able to listen to it and get all the goodies. Okay, so... To draw out this triangle, we have to start with the foundation. We start with the base. Thank you, sir. We don't start with the tip. What is that first thing that I have there? What do I call that base? Axiom. Thank you. Now, an axiom is used in a lot of different studies. Axioms are used in math. Axioms are used in philosophy. Our axiom that we are using here is the Word of God. Now, when people don't like us using the word of God as an axiom, I'll show you how to defend that in just a moment, but our axiom is the Bible. That's where we start. If we wanted to discuss other viewpoints, we would ask them, what is your foundational belief? That's another way of saying axiom. What's your foundational belief? So we can use the word axiom. We can use the word foundation. For us, it's the Bible. We'll talk about that in a little bit. The next thing is what? What's the word I have next? Presuppositions. Now, this word may be a bit big for you guys. Is there two S's or one S? Okay. Two P's, though. Thank you. So this may be a little bit harder for you guys to understand. Maybe you yeah. haven't heard it before. But the idea of a presupposition, and you can look it up by a dictionary. There's nothing that we're talking about here that you can't really look up by dictionary. There's no double meaning to the words I'm using. I'm using them as they've been standard, uh, used in a standard way. What we see here is the supposition, the supposition we had prior to our inquiry of knowledge. Now, when I draw this out, it's going to be the, what do I label this chart? What do I call it? Understanding levels of knowledge, and another big word for that is epistemology. Okay, how we know what we know. Epistos is knowledge, episte, and then ology is the study of knowledge. So we're studying how we know what we know. We're thinking about what we think about. Now, in my discussions or in my world view, I already have suppositions. That I have prior, pre to my looking for more information. Now, all of us have these things. So, this is not something that people can just say to you and be like, You Christians, you're not open minded, you're closed minded, you already believe all these things, we can't change your mind. This is in the world as well. I'm going to show you that in just a moment, how everybody fits into this. I'm going to show you how to put everybody here into this this triangle, and when you're having discussions, to do it in your mind, be like, okay, what's your foundation? And then what are some of the things you presuppose? And if you don't want to even just ask that, just say, well, what are some of the things you derive? You derive from your axiom. The next thing that I have is what? What do we call those things? Propositions. Propositions. Now, propositions are the statements of belief that we're making from our presuppositions, an axiom. And if we're looking at it as something that's going like this in conversation, we have an axiom, we have a presupposition, now we're making propositions. This is where I want to go a little bit deeper to where I could go before on Sunday. Propositions are limited to the deductive method. They are not inductive. Now, the difference between deduction and induction is another discussion that we could have if you guys are interested, or you could just look up a video or just put it in your phone. The differences between induction and deduction. Let me just kind of give it to you like this. I'm going to find a chart uh, while I Google real quick so I can say it in a simple way to save me time. Difference between induction and deduction. Okay. Deduction reasoning works from the general to the specific, known as top-down. And so what that would mean is, is I would start off by saying in a logical, what we would call that I'm making right here, is a syllogism. When we start putting our words to points, this is a logical syllogism. Now, all of this you can learn in my presuppositional class that I did last summer all of that in detail with the textbook, but I'm trying to summarize it. So think of this as deduction going from general up here to specific, okay? So start with this. All men are mortal, mortal. Socrates is a man. What logically follows now to number three as the conclusion? Socrates is mortal. Thank you, my brother. Is mortal. Do you see? We started with the general, all men are mortal. We then moved specifically to Socrates is a man. Now we have the conclusion, therefore, Socrates is mortal. That is deductive logic. Inductive logic is reasoning from observations. And then drawing a general conclusion. So now let me give you an example here. Water. Oh, let me see. Let me say it like this. Let me give you a good one. Because if I go right off the top of my head, I may not give you the best one. Let me just see if I can find one right here. This is not my strong point. Okay, here we go. Okay. I believe I can do it if I don't find one here, real quick. Okay. Water boils when hot. Hot water is 212 degrees or higher, therefore, water boils at 212 degrees or higher, okay? I would not have known this unless I started with testing things over here and started to have information to work down here to a general claim. So I'm starting off here specifically talking about water boiling when hot. I am now coming generally to water's temperature. And then now I tell you, therefore, the water will boil when it's after 12 degrees, uh, after 212 degrees. Let me give you another example of induction, just to make sure I'm doing it right, example of induction. And like I said, I ha- when I have these things in front of me and all of those detailed notes, I can do it a little bit better. And of course, when I want to find something here, It's not going to help me. Let me see here. Here we go. Induction. These beans are from this bag. These beans are white. All the beans in this bag are white. So we start off with the general. These beans are in this bag. Water boils when it's hot. Hot water, see, now we're describing what hot water is. Hot water is 212 degrees or higher Water, therefore, boils at 212 degrees or higher. So we're starting up here, and then we're working down. And that's uh, going from specific to general. So now the general rule is, the general rule from all of my tests is that water will boil at 212 degrees. In, uh, In deduction, we're starting here with the general. All men are mortal. Now we get to a specific case. So I started off here telling you specifically water is doing this, and then now in general it will do this after any time. And I'll never know these things, and here's the most important part, so I don't want to get lost and go beyond my depth, which is actually pretty foundational, so I, I don't try to pretend to know everything in this. The real difference is here, is that induction is based upon your senses and your tests and your inspir- and your experiments. You cannot know something unless you already have tested it and seen that it is what it is. As I saw water start to boil. that's See, I started with that. Water is boiling. This water is boiling. Now, every time I do it, I start to notice that it's around 212. Now I make this general rule. But the problem with induction, and if you look it up, the problem of induction by Hume, by David Hume, you'll see that what you have to assume to do induction is that number one, your senses are correct. So when you're measuring the water, that you are not that brain in a vat and this is not an illusion. You have to test your senses. The second thing is you have to assume that the future will be like the past. And so now you have to believe that every time I come to water and put it at 212, it will do it. But I have no proof of what the future's going to be like. All I have is the experiments that I've done in the past. And so what is the guarantee that my senses are right? There are none. What is the guarantee that the future will be like the past? There are none. Does everybody get that? Now, deductive logic... Is not based upon our senses. It's not based upon our experience, and it's not based upon whether or not the future will be like the past. Deductive logic is based upon whether or not these principles are true within the structure of the argument itself. So, for example, water doesn't boil at this temperature at Mountain height, as it does the same at sea level, that changes now how water boils. And guess what? Here is a deep thought that we know with time. If anybody saw the movie um, with the guy, he's in, he's lost in time. He's an astronaut. Interstellar, thank you. What we know about interstellar and non-Christian and Christian alike totally agree with this. What we know is that time travels different dependent upon the the, the the force of gravity. So time travels different. Time time is experienced different and time moves differently. So in the movie Interstellar, the people on the planet are are living uh, going through something like in moments like would feel like normal, the guy in the spaceship, so it sort of feels like it's only been two hours down there on the planet. In, in the spaceship, it's been like 20 years. And that is true mathematically. You can listen to Neil deGrasse Tyson talk about this and the physicists. They're talking about how this works because there's a bend With gravity, that has time move slower at different parts. But if you're in either one of these parts, time is still time. So time has not changed. It's just, and I want to make sure I say this correctly, so time, a minute will still feel like a minute. It's just where you are at. Where you are at determines how time is in relation to another place. And so this is what we say. When God made the heavens and the earth, he stretched the heavens. So in six days... Here on earth time, the whole world was being created, but in this kind of space time, it's millions and billions of years. So we don't just say like God just made a earth billions of years old, and that's just how we just end it, because we're seeing stars that have died, and that would have mean Jesus would have made dead stars, and we're now getting it now. Why would he make dead stars. It would make no sense. But what we're saying is as God stretched forth the heavens and what would be one day on earth was billions of years in the expansion of this universe. Now that's not just a problem that Christians have to answer with time. That is how everybody has to deal with time. So it's not as easy as you think. So when we get into how we're experiencing time, that's the whole thing of Isaac. I mean, of uh, Einstein and can you time travel and all these different things. So having said all of that, we can't do induction and expect to get certain answers or to have certainty. So uh, propositions must be deductive based on our presuppositions and axioms. These three categories are what we call certain knowledge. Does everybody get that? We can be certain. What is the last part of the pyramid? Opinions. And opinion is uncertain. And so what does induction, what does science fall under? Opinions. Exactly. That's not only what I say. That's what theoretical scientists say. And so I'll just give you an example from one of them right now. A theoretical scientist. uh, Let me get it up here. Theoretical physicist explains why science, of course the advertisement comes up, why science is not certain. And then this is, and this is newrepublic.com, why science is not certain from a theoretical scientist. Science is not about certainty. Science is not about certainty. Science is about finding, watch this, the most reliable way of thinking at the present level of knowledge. So, now let's go back to this water example of induction. Okay? So, at our present knowledge, it's 212 degrees. But let's say we had a more precise way of figuring it out. We would go 211 degrees, 999998 is exactly where it boils. But we just say once you hit the 212 mark, you're good. That's that works, right? Now let's say we go to our next level of knowledge and instead of it being 9998, now we realize that it goes 8 like pi, it goes 8765482. F- so you see what I'm saying? We go further in the measurement. So you can measure something in feet You can measure something, then, in inches. You can measure something, then, in centimeters. You can measure in millimeters. You get what I'm saying? Now, guess what? This will never end. It will keep going. All science is like that. So every time we're doing something, we're always giving our best guess. Science is, by definition, our best guess. Science, by definition, is not certain knowledge. And that's why, even here in his article, he says scientifically proven is like saying a married bachelor. You can't scientifically prove anything because science never proves anything. All science does is falsify bad information. So, science is a method where bad information is cast out. So, is it 200 and 10 degrees, we know it's not. We've tested it over and over. We can be certain that it's not that, but what we cannot be certain of is the affirmation of when water exactly boils. We're always rounding. We're always rounding in science, and the beauty of it is best guesses work. Best guesses get us to the moon because it's close enough. That guess was close enough to work to get us to do what it does. The laws of combustion, aerodynamics, you don't have to necessarily go beyond these decimal points. You can say lift happens at this number, and then you can stop it. Let's say lift You know, All of these are formulas, like E equals mc squared, like lift is something force plus mass and energy, right? And then you plug in the numbers, and at, at some point, The decimal points don't need to keep going. Maybe they just stop. Uh, Maybe they can do it at a rounded up number like we do with water. 212, that's good enough. There doesn't seem to be a reason to have to be be more specific than that. Maybe sometimes it has to go two decimal places. Maybe other times it has to go like this. And math just keeps going like this to discover more things by the specifics. But they never get to a point where they say it's over. Now, somebody says, well, what about basic math? Most of us, depending on who you talk to, would say basic math falls under certainty into into deduction because it can be demonstrated. It can be shown. Two plus two equals four. It's solid. There aren't things that we're having to experiment with that. But anything you're having to experiment and do tests with, in general, uh, and starting with specific and then making general laws, will always have uncertainty somewhere in it because science can never give you certainty. The deductive logic always gives you certainty, and if you've done it right, it works. If you've done it wrong, so we would have to see, are all men mortal? Is that true? Now, somebody might say, we don't know all men, but we would qualify that by saying, all the men that we know, are they mortal, right? So now it follows that if Socrates is a man, he's mortal. Now, it could be true there could be a man that we know about, uh, don't know about, that lived forever, but the idea here is not necessarily just talking about men. It's just how logic works, how the formulation is. You're starting with something that you can know, and then you go to the, uh, you, you, you have generally knowledge of it, and then you go to the specific. Here you start with the specifics and the studies, and you come to the general knowledge. That's just kind of the difference. And so the bottom line is, Jared, can you erase this for me, is we do not look to science for certainty. I want to make sure Desi's keeping up with me and some of the others that maybe this is new for you. We don't look to science for certainty. Where do we look for certainty? We look to logic for certainty. And where does logic come from? Logic comes from God and his word. That's where we go for certainty. Now I want to explain this a little bit more and start plugging in information, and I'll show you how it works by kind of defending it. So as we learned yesterday, we defend and we destroy. As he's erasing this, let's go to our defense scripture. And Peter, it says that we defend by giving answers, apologia, where we get the word apologetics. So understanding worldview is a part of, uh, when you understand your worldview, you'll understand how to do apologetics. If you don't have a good worldview, you can't do apologetics. So go with me to 2 Peter chapter 3, 2 Peter chapter 3, thank you, or 1 Peter chapter 3 rather, verse 15. Says, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. See, we always start with Christ in our hearts. We're not coming with doubt or unbelief. But in your heart, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer, an apology. Remember, that's not an apology. It's not saying you're sorry. It's giving a defense to everyone who asks you to give the hope. Give give to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. So we're going to give defense, and we're going to destroy. The the passage we read says destroy every argument. Did I read that whole passage in 2 Corinthians? I did? I didn't? Good. Okay. just want to make sure I did. Okay, let's go here to our axiom is the word of God. Okay. How do we know the Word of God is the Word of God? What's the answer to that? What's that? It says it is. God says it's the Word of God. Now, what we've just done is we've just argued in a circle. We said God. We said our, our foundation is God's Word. How do we know it's God's Word? God said it's God's Word in His Word. Therefore, it's God's Word. Now, somebody may say, you can't argue in a circle. Then I'm going to say, prove to me I can't argue in a circle. They're going to say, I'll show you in logic. Now I'm going to say to them, show me that logic works without you using logic. They can't do it. So now they have to say, logic works because logic works, therefore logic works. Every axiom, every single axiom argues in a circle. That's why it's the axiom. It is not an axiom if it is not your first circular argument. If you do not have a first circular argument, you cannot know anything. People who say, I don't need a foundation, I can learn stuff, is like saying, I can play soccer while skydiving. They're deceiving themselves. And so all you do is you use their argumentation against them. If they say, I don't need a foundation to know anything, then say is that your first foundation? I don't need a foundation to know anything. Do you get how we just showed them? They just contradicted themselves. And we'll get to the three laws of logic now cuz I think this will be good. There is the law of identity, there is the law of the excluded middle, and then there is the law of non-contradiction. These are the three basic laws that everybody has to play by. There is no way to make sense out of anything in the world if we deny these three things. And if somebody does, then you have to ask them, what does the color of autumn smell like on Tuesday? What does the color of autumn smell like on Tuesday? That's That's what sentences would be like if there was no logic. So you just are talking to somebody that's an ignoramus at that point. And now you just have to show them that the fool said in the heart, there is no God. You move on to other things to decide whether or not you throw your pearls before swine. So what we're trying to do is have rational conversations with people. Okay. Now, let me explain the law of identity. Let me see if I put it in these notes. I did not put it. I thought I would have put them in these notes, but I guess I didn't. I had them here. Law of identity. Give me just a second. I know I have the law of not contradiction. I think I just, yeah, I summarized it a little bit too much on these notes. Give me just, just a second. Apologetic. Okay. I can pretty much give you these, but I like to have my notes right in front of me so that I don't get off because, you know, it's not my strength. And for, for some of you, who are um, learning these things, you can see how humble I'm being with it. I don't try to be an old old. on. If you meet some real smart philosopher, say, that's okay, I don't know all of that, and the Bible said I don't need to. I don't have to be dependent upon that. Let's just get to where the rubber meets the road, okay? All right, so the law of identity is A equals A. If A is not A, then it can't be A. So A equals A is how we begin to know what things are. The Bible says in the beginning, God. God identifies everything for us so that now we can add identity to things. Now, can people have disagreements over identity? Yes. Can people call things different things? Yes, but it is what it is. If it wasn't it, it would not be it. So the first thing is, what are we talking about in conversation? We have to label it. Properly, law of identity. The second thing is the law of the excluded middle. Now, listen to this everything must either be or not be. A is either a true proposition or it isn't. It has to be either true or false. A either equals uh, A or a- E, or excuse me, A either equals B. Or A does not equal B. If A equals B, then they are the same thing. We're just labeling them differently. If I say there is a man, his name is Joe, he's six foot one, he weighs 200 and some pounds, you know, and I label that as Joe, and then I say, and then there's another man that we'll call person A, and I describe him in every way I just described person Joe, Joe and person A are exactly the same thing. If I describe a woman and I call her Nancy and then I I say person B is everything Nancy is, Nancy and person B are exactly the same thing. So don't get caught up with labels, but you just have to ask yourself, Are the labels identifying the same thing? So we start with the law of identity, and then when we start adding in different components, we want to see are they the same thing because you cannot be opposite of something and be that something at the same time. A statement cannot be true and false at the same time. And then the third one is the law of non-contradiction. A cannot be different from B and be B at the same time. So A cannot be different, we'll just use that as a different sign, different than B and then equal B. A has to be the same as B, we'll say the same as a smiley face here, to equal B. And they have symbols for all this. But remember, I'm just trying to give you guys the basics. The law of the excluded middle gives us the law of non-contradiction. The law of the excluded middle says there can't be a true and a false here. And the law of non-contradiction says that's the reason why the identity is what the identity is, because it can't contradict itself. So they all, and, and identity, the first law tells you what something is, so they all play off of each other. And if you don't know them, you can't talk rationally in conversation, okay? Does everybody get that? So when I know what something is, I'll know that it can't be the opposite of that something at the same time that it is the something, and I'll know that that when it's here, there is no when it's opposite. There's no way that it still shares the same property. So maybe I should have started with, with non-contradiction first. So the law of identity, then law of non-contradiction, the law of excluded middle. Because once you've established the law of non-contradiction, then there is no middle ground between two opposing beliefs. Does everybody get that? So this is how we look at the laws of logic. Now, when we're talking about axioms, everybody argues in a circle, but not everybody describes their view in a rational way. So now let me show you, there are called vicious circles and virtuous circles. If I say I'm using my logic to have logic and that's my circle, what I then have to ask myself is, where does logic come from? Now, if they want to ask that same question about God, that's okay, because now we're going to ascribe attributes to God. So the first thing we're going to say about God is God is timeless. He's immaterial, right? We're going to say all of those things. Now somebody has to decide whether or not they're going to say that with logic. This is what people would say who believe in Plato, Platoism, they, like Plato. They would literally say logic exists as logic. Principles in an immaterial world and is equal to all the attributes we would give God. The problem with that is we give God a mind. Where do these principles reside? How do they float around in an immaterial world if they're not in a mind? We say in the beginning was the logos, the logic, the logic was with God and the logic was God. Where is your logic now? So now they have a problem. Their circle is vicious because it hasn't even gotten off the ground. Our circle is virtuous because we're explaining within our circle the attributes that make our circle make sense. Now, this is where somebody says, I could throw my thing onto any God I want. My logic resides in the flying spaghetti monster's brain. That's where mine is. Now, guess what we do? Law of identity. Describe the spaghetti monster. All-knowing. All-powerful. Boom, boom, boom. You've just described our God. You've called it the spaghetti monster to be silly, but the law of identity says everything you used is what I identify my God as. You're calling it something else, but you haven't changed it. It's that. That is what it is. You get what I'm trying to say there. So anything that quacks like a duck, looks like a duck, is a duck. So you can't get around this. Now somebody may say, as atheists do, they'll say, there's no reason to have to explain logic. It just is. Then you could say to them, according to the law of non-contradiction, then that means I can say God is just is. And you need to worship him because that just is what it is. And I can now do all that. If you don't agree with that, you're playing by two different standards. Because you're saying that now, because I'll try to say I'm contradicting myself. But how am I contradicting myself by saying all of my beliefs is, just is what it is. So if you just want to say it is what it is and I don't need any explanation for it, then I can do the same. But that's not what they're trying to do. They're trying to shut down your opinion or they're trying to shut down your belief as if it's an opinion, and you're showing them what they have is really false. And so they're using what we would call, now this is something you've got to understand, a different standard. So if they'll say something like this to you, um, well, let's just pretend God doesn't exist for a second and have this conversation. No, let's pretend God does exist and have the conversation. Do you get my point? They're asking you to do stuff that they're not doing to themselves. So that's where you hold them to. That's where you hold their feet to the non-contradiction. You can't contradict, and 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 this is like a phrase they would say. Like their phrase is, "We can have an argument where we pretend logic doesn't need to make sense. We just use it." Well, if that's true, then I can have a conversation where God doesn't have to make sense to you. We just assume that He exists. Do you get that? So don't let them try to get you to believe in something that they themselves are not willing to believe in. That shows you they're contradicting themselves. Contradiction is a sign of a failed argument or inconsistency is another way to see uh, contradictions. They're being inconsistent. They want you to grant them for the sake of argument, well, imagine if God doesn't exist. Don't grant them that. Say, I'll grant you the imagination God doesn't exist. When you grant me the imagination, he does exist. So if you want to argue from a place he doesn't exist, then that place is the same to me as where he does exist. And if you're not willing to do that, then you're not being consistent. You're contradicting yourself. You're contradicting your method. Now, for us, I never assume in the argument God doesn't exist because it's impossible for God not to exist. So for us to pretend he doesn't exist in the conversation is to be nonsensical. So... How I would turn that back around on them is I would say, me pretending God doesn't exist for the conversation is like me trying to pretend I don't exist for the conversation. How can I pretend I don't exist in the conversation while I'm having the conversation? I am having a conversation. I can't deny myself existence in the, con- in the conversation. I cannot deny my God in, this con- in the conversation. I have been commanded to always revere him as Lord. So I will never take him off of his throne. So if that's where you want to go in the conversation, the conversation's done. I will not deny my God for the conversation. You don't have to. The Bible never teaches you to do that. Deny me and pretend I don't exist and then go over here and try to find common ground. Never do that. You always are on the ground of your worldview. So here's our worldview, here's their worldview. What they always want to do is get you to come over to their worldview and have all these conversations and discussions. No, you let them know that this whole entire thing is happening in God's worldview. And you're never going to deny that. Because for you to deny that in a conversation is just like you denying God and, uh, the God of Israel and bowing down to a statue in uh, Babylon. We don't give them that place. And that's what frustrates them when you argue like this. Because they're used to arguing with Christians that want to keep showing them evidence. And we're saying, we're not even letting you get past this first foundation. I'm not showing you all this evidence. Here's how I know to show people evidence. When you have an open heart to believe without being sassy. When you get to the point and you start doubting everything I'm sharing with you, and now you want to make me feel like I'm on the defensive, now I'm going to destroy your worldview. I'm going to show you, you literally have nothing to stand on. In my Bible's perspective, you're standing on sand. I'm on the foundation of God's word. That's what frustrates them. And if you hear me debate with people like this that are a little bit smarter than the average bear, they're going to get upset that I'm doing this with them. They're going to get upset. They're going to know my technique. They're going to say, this is a stupid thing. You presuppositionalists, you axiomists, you foundationalists, you guys are stupid. You don't argue the evidence. We want to go argue another Christian with another Christian. That's fine. Then go talk to them and waste their time. But I'm not going to let you do anything with, by violating these laws. I'm standing on my, my circle of God. He is my axiom. And so when they say, well, how do you know that? I say the word of God says that. And then they say, well, how do you not know you yourself are not in the matrix? And then I ask them, if my presupposition is, if my axiom is true, and the presuppositions I'm saying from them, like we learned last week, there's a God, there's a a creation, and all those presuppositions. If those are true, could that God, logically, without violating any of these things, give me certainty? Is there anything that is illogical about that God creating, doing these things, giving his creation certainty. No. So I don't have to go beyond that. I have just told you I have answered that. And here's a good way I like to look at it. I call it zeros and ones. When you're discussing with somebody, oftentimes they think their one is sim- uh, they think their zero is similar to your one. They'll say, I don't know. And nobody else does. Then you ask them, how do you know nobody else does? Do you have all knowledge? You seem to know something that says, I know, nobody else knows. Are you all knowing? How do you know the person knows right down the road? You haven't met them yet. So we stop them. But then they'll say something like, you know what? I'm just a little bit smarter than you. I, I admit some of these things don't make sense and we don't know and that's just the best it's going to be. You want to say you do know and that's just your make-believe and all of that. What we now do is we stop and show them, number one, everybody has faith because in the world that we live in, in induction, it's impossible to live without having faith in these principles because we do not know the future will be like the past and we do not know how to trust our senses. So everybody's making steps of faith right now, including you. That's why you don't kill me and think I'm a robot. You actually think I'm a person. But how do you know I'm not a robot? How do you know I'm not an advanced robot? How do you know we're not in a God's dream right now, and you're supposed to kill everybody, and then you win the game? See, we could be here all day. So the point is, I have an answer. I have a one that answers this. And this is the only time I'll use if. Even if I was wrong in how I'm describing it and some of my presuppositions or axioms, even if I was wrong, here is what I offer you. A one, you're still at the point of zero. And the difference between a zero and a one, listen to me, is greater than the difference between a one and a zillion. You guys got to get that. Because the, the gulf you have to cross from one, from zero to one, is not just one; it is literally something not existing, something not existing to something existing. It's a lot easier to have one existing thing and then a zillion existing things than it is to have something not existing to then get it to exist one time. Do you get the difference? So a zero to a one is huge. There could not be a greater. It's an infinite, un, uh, unpassable. Distance, unpassable. You have to get that. It's unpassable from zero to one. So what I'm giving you, even if it was not correct, it is still better than what you have. You ought to humble yourself and study my axiom, learn the presuppositions, the propositions that come through that, and then live your life accordingly. Now, where did science come from? Science, these opinions, came from men who believed in the proposition and presuppositions of their axiom, the Bible. So we'll be here all day. All the great things that we accomplish in the world of our opinions are based in that Christian worldview of certainty because he made the world to be discoverable. He made us intelligent. He made us to do all of these things. And so even if they don't like our answer, we have an answer. If they then try to say, "Well, I can make an answer almost exactly similar to yours," then we go to the law of identity and say, "Well, then start there." And now let's and this and, and then here's. Let me just skip ahead because I took a little bit longer than I wanted to. What do we do now? Because this is mostly with atheists, agnostics, sassy spiritual people, whatever. What do we do with all the other religious people? Oh, well, that's just real simple. You just go axiom versus axiom. Boom. You just start to see where is the consistency from axiom to presuppositions to propositions. And anything that is outside of Christianity contradicts itself in this world. And so that's where you just know their book, their man, compare it to your book, your man, head to toe, boom. Now most of the world lives there. So what do we do when we meet the Hindu like I did yesterday at the park? And I can't wait to have you there in those discussions, man. When do you guys move in? Three weeks, two two or three weeks? September 30th. That's going to be so awesome, dude. So into it. I had a great conversation yesterday. I was And here's my friend Vinny. He'll take it from here. Tag team. And then the women will just be playing, swinging, and just having fun and all that. Are you guys looking forward to having that park in your backyard? Just that alone will change your world, right? Just go play. Yes. Hopefully you get to enjoy some before the weather gets too cold, yeah. Uh, so, So what do I do? I don't have to go through all of this with him. I just simply start going axiom to axiom, presupposition to presupposition, who created your God, where did your God come from? Because they have a God, gods that come from gods, you know, and they act like they're in a soap opera. And I say, our God is is, is self-existing, you know. He doesn't come from anything else, you know. So I start showing them, see, our God is greater than your God. And then our presuppositions are that God made the universe distinct from himself. You believe this is all part of God, right? Well, that wouldn't make any sense. How does God's mind come, come through the, the creation in the same way that it is in his person? That would, I would be hitting God's mind now and all that. See, the difference between us is that we believe there are immaterial things our minds can transcend to, but that's not equal to God himself. God being called the word, God being called truth has limitations. I don't literally believe Jesus is a math formula or a logical formula. He's a person, and from him we transcend, we communicate with him through our conscience, those who are Christians via the Holy Spirit, but we don't believe God is his creation. We're not pantheists. That's another word for that. Pan is all, and theos all is God. So I just, just go right there, and those discussions for me are always fun. It's the ones that don't want to acknowledge these things that get sassy and annoying and frustrating. And the sad part is, is that people in our culture don't know that they're without a foundation. So as I met the guy, like, how do you decide what are your ethical world, What is your ethical worldview? So basically, I was basically asking him, what are your propositions of ethics? My propositions come from the foundation of the Bible and the presupposition. So there I make a proposition that says, Thou shalt not murder, because the Bible says that. Uh, you know, I do all of these propositional things. It's not just my opinion. It's a proposition that comes from the world, uh, the, the worldview that I have from the Bible. So I ask him, What is his? And, and he says he's making propositions right here based on pragmatism. And, and you can see how easily that just got rocked. But I never went further than that and asked him, What are your foundations? If he would say, well, all of my found all of my beliefs come from pragmatism. I mean, you just destroy it the same way I destroyed it ethically. You have no way of answering any of the major questions of who am I, why am I here, and where do I go when I die by pragmatism. And if they say none of those things matter, then call them a hypocrite and say, because you're living like it matters, you're not naked. You're in a relationship. You're not stealing. You're not in jail. You haven't committed suicide yet. So all of these things you're saying that don't matter, you're actually showing by your life that's a lie, that it does matter to you. So what we then tell them is you're borrowing from our worldview. So that's a term you have to use. Learn to say that you're borrowing. You're taking things from my toy box, and you're playing with it now. In your toy box of pragmatism, there's nothing here that says we can't murder people. So if I want to live in that world, we can murder and eat children. But you don't like murdering and eating children. Why? Because you like to take things from the God, God's toy box. Okay, and, and that's really what we do show other religions is your religion makes no sense, and my logic that comes from my God, or logic that you understand that comes from my God, will show you how it makes no sense. But it can, it can be a little difficult if you don't know everybody's worldview in religious settings. You know, they may do like the guy did yesterday well, I don't believe that, and I don't believe this, and it just takes time. You don't want to be angry towards people and, and pretend like you always know them. But that's how you help defend and destroy. But remember, it's all, all of this is right here for this. It's all just to preach the gospel. You're doing this because you want to know why you believe what you believe. So it's first and foremost for you. And then when people come to your castle, you're going to defend your castle, and then you're going to defeat their castle, right? We like to play games. We like to win. That's all you're doing. But it's all just for the sake of the gospel, So I'm protecting my worldview, and in here, do things change? Well, my axiom doesn't change, but some of my presuppositions may change. I I may be presupposing right now it's a six-day creation, and maybe it's a a day-age creation. Maybe God did it that way. Now, I could change. I don't think I am, but I'm just saying I could still be a Christian and believe that in other words, right? Uh, I can't deny certain fundamental things. So basically, your presuppositions are the fundamentals of Christianity. Um, They could change, and then you could start walking different lines and all that, but that would be very dangerous. Things in my life that I've already settled, just this is me, and I know people who don't want to do that, and they want to always be deep, and they never produce any fruit for the gospel, and they're always lost, and they don't have good relationships because they're not a solid person to be around. They always want to question. After the axiom, all these presuppositions, and, it, and it's just a waste of time. They're just studying to study, and the Bible says, Knowledge puffeth up, you know, it just puffs them up. For me in my life, I have settled on my, my, my presuppositions, I've just settled on them. People can call that simple minded, whatever I'm gonna, but it's my life because then remember, whatever they bring against me, I can bring right against them. I can start to show them, like they say, they may say, like this, question everything, dude. Okay, why? See, he said to me, question everything. What was my response? Why? I questioned what you just said. See, so, you know, it, it will fall apart again. The Bible says to build your house on a rock, and a double-minded man is what? What does the Bible say in James? A double-minded man is, I'm trying to do it here, on, by the ways, and it says that he's on, Unstable. On there you go. Blown by the waves of the wind, yes, but the word that describes it is unstable. Let's pray. Oscar, please shut us down. Father, thank you for this wonderful day. I know it was a bit deep, but I pray that it will be applied to our lives. Help us to study more and to all grow in this. I know that I'm challenged to do so. But at the same time, to remember that it's not by words of men's wisdom. We're not trying to convince them philosophically about your power and your love. Rather, we're demonstrating it. But, Lord, help us to know some of these things so that we can demonstrate your worldview to others as we're demonstrating the power so that they'll have a foundation to live on. Just like you did. You did miracles. You changed the world through your love, but then you also got so deep and taught us very philosophical-minded things, and help us to do both, knowing which one comes first. It's always putting you as Lord in our hearts and trusting you, even if we don't understand everything. But as we grow and mature, to begin to, as Paul said, getting off of the milk, going to the meat, understanding the words of wisdom, going to the depths of them, and to, and to understand you so we can explain you to this world. In Jesus' name we pray.